Hey guys, and welcome to the sixth episode of the interview. For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Stephen Hicks. Professor Hicks is a Canadian-American philosopher who teaches at Rockford University, where he also directs the Centre for Ethics and Entrepreneurship. He was one of the first voices to alert us to the growing problem of postmodernism and was the author of Explaining Postmodernism, a book outlining the problem and the threat of this movement back in 2000. Unfortunately for this interview, I had some issues with the audio and I lost part of the interview. The problem was rectified eventually, so if you find the audio frustrating for the first few minutes, then fast forward to 10 minutes, 15 seconds, where the audio is perfect. Anyway, here's the beginning of the interview when we discuss why free market capitalism is not compatible with traditional conservatism. Hope you enjoy. I listened to your podcast the other day where you said um, conservatives are not capitalists, are not capitalists. What sort of economic system are conservatives in favor of? Yeah, again, conservative is a, a, a broad label. Uh, as the label suggests, uh, the, the origin of it is to say that we have a pretty good system overall and we should be focused on uh, preserving the good elements of the system and that while they are open to reform, exploratory and very slow. So in that sense, a conservative is partly a temperamental perspective, but it's partly also an ideological perspective about how best to, to manage society. And the contrast to a conservative would be, and the sooner we jettison the fundamental elements of our society and replace them with something new, the better. And so then typically will want to say that uh, with, with regard to the slowness, that it's taken a long time for us to build up the good things that they see as predominant in our society. And so we should have a, a reverence or at least a, 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 a starting point of deference to traditions that have stood the test of time. Uh, and that uh, uh, what we should then be to stand against the voice of tradition and all of the smart people who've gone ahead uh, beyond or in the past uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to create the kind of society uh, or to think that I as a young person know better than all traditions are what should be done. And that's what I take to be the core of conservatism or the core of traditional conservatism. And that's a cross-cultural uh, type of position. Then there's going to be some national differences depending on what country you're in and what traditions you think are, are the important ones. Now, why I think uh, conservatives are not free market capitalists, which uh, was the, the podcast that I think you listened to, mm. is that they and the advocates of free market capitalism recognize that capitalism has been one of the most revolutionary cultural forces of all time. That uh, capitalism has been extraordinarily get rid of the old ways of doing things pretty quickly to adopt the new technologies. But beyond technologies, capitalism has been extraordinarily uh, 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 revolutionary with respect to social dimensions. Capitalism says, look, I don't care what color your skin is, or what part of the world you come from, or what your religion is. I'm willing to, uh, to do business with people on the other side of the world if they can make more money from me, for me, which then is to say that I'm not going to be as loyal to my own country or my, my own 
region. And all of that is profoundly unsettling to traditional conservatives who typically want to say it's our nation and it's our group and we need to stay together because that's where they see social cohesion and progress to have to come from. But traditional conservatives, uh, uh, with respect to the family, they will typically say the family is a very important institution for raising children. And traditional conservatives then are more likely to believe in traditional roles for women and for men and uh, to be slow in thinking that we should change those things. But of course, the capitalists come along and they say that anybody should be free to start a business, including young women. There's nothing special uh, or sacrosanct or a religious duty about becoming a mother. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. That's great. You should be free to do so. Uh, but we shouldn't be socially urging young women uh, to, to, to see that that is the only thing. And so capitalism has been encouraging women to, uh, to get an education, to pursue careers, to be able to sign contracts in their own name, uh, to start their own businesses and so forth. And all of that is, has been profoundly unsettling to, to traditional conservatives. Traditional conservatives have also uh, argued uh, that religion we should advocate for religion as a force of social cohesion because people need to have a common framework. They need to have a common morality. And so uh, it's important that there be one religion that, uh, that everybody believe for moral reasons and so on. And again, free market capitalism has been uh, traditionally uh, willing to say, we don't care what your religion is. We will we'll do business with you, whether you're Right, Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Hindu or or atheist, we just don't care about religion. What matters is can you deliver the goods uh, in the market? So it's uh, uh, particularly on cultural and moral reasons that the the conservatives will see capitalism as a corrosive force, as undermining the traditional institutions that think think are very important. And then the free market capitalists. The major voices, particularly the 20th century, you know, Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, and so on, they've been more uh, optimistic and saying, look, we just need to treat people as free individuals, as self-responsible. They'll work it out uh, that the market will be self-correcting. People who are bad people and aren't willing to play well with others, the market's going to weed them out. So we don't really have this more you know, cultural conformity about the role of women, religion, and so forth. So would a conservative sort of advocate for a, a populist-like economic system where sort of closed trades and uh, indigenous industries, uh, so sort of limited kind of interaction with, with, with the global markets? Um, I, there are different forms of conservatism on that dimension. Some conservatives are looking person uh, is good, is decent. You know, think uh, you know John Bull in England, or the average uh, you know American worker in the United States. Uh, and we should be anti-elitist. You know, it's elitists, government, corrupt power, and so forth. So there is a more populist form of conservatism, and they will typically argue that uh, things should be done more at the local level or the state level, where people can have more of a sense of of community. There are more uh, traditional conservatives, though, who are more elitist. They will typically argue that uh, 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 people 
do need a kind of leadership that most people are not that intelligent. Most people are more given to their baser instincts. They, they're more likely to drink too much or indulge in sex too much. So we can't give them too much freedom. Instead, they do need more paternal control by kind of a benevolent father-like or mother-like political leadership. And as long as that political leadership has good traditional conservative values, then things are going to be going to be okay. So, you know, in the local community, uh, you know, most people might want to have bars and maybe a sex shop or a strip club at the, you know, at the edge of town uh, and want to have a smoke in the evening and so on. But really those things aren't good for the people. So uh, uh, the, the conservative leadership will say, we're not going to allow the, the, the porn store, we're not going to allow the gambling establishment, we're not going to allow the bars for the good of the people, just as a kind of paternalistic, uh, 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 keeping people in line. Under that definition, it, it's hard to think of any kind of mainstream political figures that are actual conservatives. Um, <clears throat> well, I think uh, that's an interesting question because uh, uh, conservatives of this generation, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the sorting out goes because right now within conservative circles, there is a big fight kind of for the soul of what conservatism is in the United States. So three years ago, the, the, the Republican Party, where most of the public battles over conservatism are happening, was divided between those who were very opposed to Trump and who said, never Trump, I can't bring myself to support him. Uh, and those who uh, went over to Trump uh, fairly quickly. So I think uh, uh, in another four years, you know, if Trump is reelected, but people are looking ahead to the 2024 elections, we'll see that battle uh, more, more cited. But uh, when I read occasionally in the uh, American conservative literature, there are quite a few uh, intellectual voices who are calling for a resurgence of a kind of paternalistic uh, conservatism. And some of them are overtly religious that we need to have a, a Catholic conservatism or a more generic Christian conservatism, that too much of religion has been taken out of, of modern life. Uh, and many of them are calling for traditional families return. They believe that modern feminism has, uh, has liberated women too much and that has been unhealthy for the young women themselves. So I think those people are there, but right now everything is just Trump, 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 and their voices are mostly submerged. I'd like to now move on to the recent, um, or the, I suppose the ongoing Black Lives Matter marches, because I read uh, you did a piece today about the kind of the basic psychology um, and the, the makeup of some of these, uh, these protesters. Well, yeah, that's another another interesting question. I think uh, yeah, the Black Lives Movement has evolved quite a bit over the last six or seven years that I've been uh, aware of it. Uh, I think there is a, a again, I don't, I'm not an expert with respect to the statistics, but at least anecdotally, and some of the statistics that I have seen, you know, indicate that there is a problem of police uh, uh, brutality. You know, with all due respect for the police, they often are doing an extraordinarily difficult job 
and the majority of them are, are, are well-meaning and doing their best, but there are a significant number of bad apples, including a number that are racist. Well, but, but did, did, amount... do you think, sorry to interrupt, but do you think racial bias plays a factor in police brutality? From what I've read, the data seems like it, it's police brutality is, is an issue, but racial bias is not an issue. Yes, I, I think police brutality is an issue. Uh, and on the other, I am agnostic, but leaning toward so, and, and I, I recognize the data is very difficult here, uh, that there are a, you know, more cases than there should be. Maybe that's just the easy thing to say of uh, uh, racial involvement or racial bias being an, an issue. So I think uh, uh, there is a legitimacy to the protest. I also think it's healthy part of any sort of democratic republic that there be regular protesting of all sorts of issues going on, particularly in a large, spread out you know, a country like the United States. At the same time, uh, Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matters, uh, has from its beginning had two or three different subgroups within it with contradictory messages. There are those who take you know, Black Lives Matters to mean Black lives also do matter and that we do think that there's racism and we're objecting to the racism, particularly in the case of, uh, uh, of the problem of police racism. At the same time, within the Black Lives Matters movement, there have been a lot of, uh, of those who are much more adversarial and they're not interested in saying Black Lives Matter too, rather they're more interested in saying Black Lives Matter especially, that they are kind of racists in reverse and they are looking for this as a cause to uh, indulge in racism against whites, against others uh, whom they perceive to be racial enemies. Now, I think in the earlier days of Black Lives uh, uh, Matters, inside the movement, uh, both were well represented. My sense is that the movement is becoming more exclusionary and more adversarial as it has, has gone on. I don't have good data to back that up. That's just my my anecdotal my, uh, sense uh, uh, about what's going on. At the same time, uh, I think the Black Lives Movement has been too willing recently to, uh, to uh, play politics making bedfellows with people they should not be associated with. They are uh, they're hanging out too much with Antifa type people, under other anarchists, other people who are uh, explicitly uh, on, on the side of destruction and violence and who have a much darker understanding of what the United States is, is all about. So I, uh, my recommendation, obviously my voice uh, uh, is not going to carry much weight here, but for any movement would be to choose your allies very carefully because uh, to the extent that you hang out with those people, you're going to be tarred with the brush. So to the extent that there is a legitimate issue about racism, to the extent that there is a legitimate issue about uh, police brutality, keep it clean, keep it focused on that protest, state your position, argue well, argue angrily, that's fine, but keep it peaceful and get rid of any elements of your movement that are not willing to, uh, to play the game that way. You mentioned Antifa on the far left there. Um, how big a threat do you see the, this, this far left movement as, the, the kind of the cancel culture, the, the ripping down statues. Yeah. Uh, is it seems to me that it's kind of it started off on college campuses and I thought it was a kind of uh, a minor problem that 
uh, right wingers like to make a big deal of to use it as an excuse to kind of talk badly about the left. Yeah. But I've now noticed it kind of infiltrates some of our major institutions, like with the New York Times last week, the kind of the civil war that went on there, where the editor yeah. was for, forced to resign for publishing a piece which some of the journalists didn't like. Yeah. Where do you stand on the, the kind of the threat of, of this movement? Yeah, that's it's always a very hard question to answer because we do not have good data on the, the demographics of the, of the movement. It's always hard to say whether, you know, in a population, it's 8% uh, of the population uh, or it's 3% of the population, uh, but the 3% is just extraordinarily vocal. Uh, and uh, how much the media liking a good, uh, 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 good story uh, is uh, magnifying those beyond uh, their actual numbers and their actual voice. So I, I, uh, my, the nerd in me wants to say we need a lot better data. So all I can say, though, is when I wrote my postmodernism book 20 years ago now, in the year 2000, uh, at that point, uh, the, the intellectual uh, forebears of the current Antifa movement and the others, it was largely an intellectual movement inside the universities, more prominent in some departments inside the universities than others. Uh, and it had spilled out into general curricular discussions, and you could see outside of the classroom in the broader university campus, a significant presence on campus. Uh, so it then becomes a generational thing, and, and again, hard to predict. But if you do have a significant presence among the professoriate, uh, most smart young people go to university for their formative years. They pick up and solidify their philosophical and ideological framework for the most part at that point. And then they go on, they become the next generation's teachers and lawyers and journalists and so forth. So I think what happens then is, by the time you get, uh, say, take the New York Times as the flagship uh, publication, uh, or one of the flagship publications in the United States, and you see a sea change on the editorial staff that occurs around 2014, 2015 or so, those are then people who are in their mid to late 30s and early 40s. They are now uh, going to assume the positions of leadership. The point then is going to be that they were in college back around the year 2000. So they paid attention in class around the year 2000. They then assumed the reins of power in the middle part of the 2010s. And then with their voice, they're in a position to reach millions and millions of people. And so it goes out into the street and the nature of protest movements changes. Now that's the general pattern. Now whether, uh, again, we say the broad mass of people, uh, you know, 80, 90% of Americans, they're not politically correct or at all sympathetic to Antifa. It's just a, a loud, noisy minority getting a lot of media attention. That is unpredictable. If we move back towards a society which views objective truth um, with this postmodernist movement that's kind of gone out of control it seems like reason is becoming more and more limited and yeah. the, the 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 emphasis placed on objective truth seems to be diminishing right and it doesn't look yeah. good when we mention that these guys are infiltrating our major institutions so 
the New York Times, I notice now, lies, like it actually just lies. Yes, and this is bad. one of yeah. the flagships of, of US journalism. Is the future bleak or is there a way we can recover from this? Yeah, well, there is a way to recover from it. And, and again, I'm not uh, a crystal ball gazer who can tell you what's going to happen. Uh, but you're right, there has been a, a, a movement towards skepticism and relative and kind of a corrosive, cynical attitude toward the idea of objectivity and, and truth. Every generation we have people who don't want to do the hard work of trying to be objective and, uh, and genuinely pursuing the truth. They want shortcuts, they want to believe what they want to, to believe and not to be challenged on that. Um, and they have been aided and abetted by a, a, a generation of intellectuals or more now who have been in a very skeptical place. Now, how we move on from that is, uh, I think in one sense, uh, a large number of people are just unaware of the, the cultural corrosiveness. And so when they see things happening in Seattle, when they see uh, people just, just destroying public property and looting and so forth, and now it's all over the media, uh, most people who are decent, who think that there is a real difference between good and bad, that we do need to be tolerant and civil and have discussions and so forth, and I think that is, is most people, they sit up, they pay attention, they start to have conversations with themselves, and they start to, to push back. And that, I think, is a, a very powerful force. Uh, I think also, uh, if people are rightly identifying that there is some sickness in many of the universities, there are then many avenues possible for universities to start to correct themselves or to start to be corrected. So the politicians, in some respects, uh, to the extent that they are paying the bills, they recognize that they are spending millions of pounds or millions of dollars on universities, and they have an obligation to, uh, to make sure their taxpayers' dollars are spent on actual education. To the extent that they are appalled by what they are seeing happening in universities or coming out of universities, they will start putting some pressure now, I think that's very sad if it uh, comes to politicians putting on pressure on universities, because I think academic freedom is an extraordinarily important cultural institution, but there will be pressure that comes that way. Uh, I think young people uh, like yourselves and others who want to have something significant with their lives, they actually want to get an education. They're going to be savvier consumers because they're aware of what's going on uh, uh, on, on the social media. And if they're seeing you know, bad things happening on a university campus and they were you know, thinking possibly about going to that university, they're going to think twice, they're going to shop around a little more and say, well, maybe I will go to a university where I'm more likely actually to get an education. Uh, so I think there will be market corrections, whether they will be fast enough and whether they work, I don't think, again, that's predictable. People have free will. Uh, do you want to take the high road or do you want to take the low road? That's a choice each of us as individuals has to make. Um, are, are the majority of, um, of students that go to college in America that come out with, or that, that study the humanities, um, do most of them now believe that America is a sort of a, a deeply oppressive and racist society? And is that what these colleges are, colleges are teaching them? 
Yeah, my sense is that most of them don't. Okay. Uh, I think even young people of this generation, <clears throat> you know, they recognize that you know, the United States is a, is a great country. Now it has it has principles. Those principles they've heard the the arguments for it. Uh, they, they 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 can understand that those are their you know liberty and justice and equality for all, and that the United States, however imperfectly, has genuinely striven for those ideals. Um, so I think you know, most Americans think that the United States is a pretty good country, but I think that the the attack by those who are America haters, and there are a significant number of them who are teachers and professors, has had some impact. So uh, you know, the, the, the pride in America and what has that accomplished has, is, is more muted. And I think people are more aware of the, the weaknesses in America's historical past. And that I think also is, is a good, every, every country has its problems and part of good education is being aware of the historical problems so that you uh, are less likely to commit them in your, in your own generation. Do you believe America is the greatest country in the world? Uh, well, I think oh, that's, that's hard. I, I think... Uh, okay, I'm, I'm gonna rephrase this. What's the argument for America being the greatest country in the world? Yes. Well, I think there is, uh, so let's say the last 300 years, there has been no nation that has done a better job at articulating fundamentally moral principles of politics that human beings should be free. They have their own lives to live, that the pursuit of happiness is a, a birthright. Uh, I can't think of any other country whose politicians and intellectuals who have done a better job of articulating and advocating those, those viewpoints. So at that intellectual ideological level, I would say yes. I think the United States also um, has, uh, whether it's the strongest, but it certainly has a strong track record uh, of spending the most money and perhaps the most uh, effort at actually beating back totalitarianism, fighting against abuses of human rights around the world and so forth. Lots of other countries have done very well, but partly because of America's power presence on the world stage and just the sheer astounding amount of its wealth, I don't think there's another country that has actually done as much. So on those two counts, I'm inclined to say that, yeah, America is a great country. And if you uh, add everything up, it, it may have been the greatest country, or probably has been the greatest country for the last 300 years. Okay, I'm gonna play devil's advocate here for a sec. Uh, I live in Ireland. Uh, we have, it's not a perfect public health system, but we do have a public health system. My education was free. I came out of college with no debt. You can get a free education here. Uh, the, le the level of homicides here is very low. Nobody owns a gun, so therefore the police force are very uh, respectful to its citizens. Uh, the police have a much more easier job because no one owns a gun. Our prison population is much lower. Our social infrastructure is very good. Our infrastructure is much, is much better than it is in America. Yep. And it's yeah. a much safer country. Um, some would argue that the, the quality of life in these European-type countries 
Ireland's, uh, Germany, Scandinavia right. is, is much better. You, no matter what sort of socioeconomic demographic you're born into, you're probably being, you're pro if you're gonna take, you're gonna roll the dice, you're probably gonna be safer being born in Europe than being born in America. Okay, now that's a fair point and that's a very good uh, set of questions to raise and we need a lot better, again, social science data on that. But what I would say is if you take the approximately 200 countries around the world, that's a lot of countries, and then you identify which countries are in the top 10%, that would be the top 20 countries around the world on all these demographics that you're talking about, crime, education, healthcare, and so forth. Then Ireland, the United States, Canada, most of the European, Western European countries, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, and so on. Those are the ones that are going to be in the top 10%. And so the first thing I would say is that is an extraordinary achievement for all of those countries to have made their way into the, to the top 10%. So it's a bit like saying, you know, we have the Olympic Games every four years and there are uh, 200 people who are running the marathon and you were finishing in the top 10%. That's pretty awesome, that's pretty amazing. Now then we get to the more fine-grained trying to sort out, um, you know, what's the difference between the person who came 12th and the person who came ninth? And that becomes very hard and in many cases is very close. And so we start to drill down to different dimensions and, and, and so forth. So let me say you know, one thing, for example, about education. Uh, first off, your, your education was not free. Someone had to pay for your education. Uh, and uh, your education is not going to be free in the following sense that for the rest of your life, you will be paying taxes for other people's education. So yes, but, but, but the, the rate of tax that I pay is, would be the equivalent of what the rate of tax that uh, an American citizen would pay. And I got a free education out of that, but that American citizen did not. Okay. Right, but you didn't get a free education, right? There is no such thing as a free education. Yeah, I, I, I understand I the premise is, of your argument. What, what, what I'm okay. saying is, is, is for, for the average citizen, uh, I, me or anyone else in, in this country uh, was able to access uh, an education. Um, and we didn't have to go into 200,000 worth of debt for it. An American doesn't have that luxury. Uh, yeah, most Americans do have that luxury, but I, I do want to insist on this point. Okay. Uh, words have a meaning. Someone uh, was forced to pay taxes in order to pay for your education. Yeah. So uh, and th that is a moral issue. And I think we should all think very seriously about that issue. Do you think that other people should be forced to get up at seven o'clock in the morning and go to work all day to pay for your $200,000 education. Now, from your perspective as a young person, you are happy to say, wow, I don't have to figure out how to do so, but do re recognize that there is a great moral cost at shifting financial costs to other people and forcing them through government to pay for that. I'm not denying the moral cost, but what I'm saying is America doesn't have a far great, a far lower rate of tax, which I think it should do, given the lack of government services it provides in comparison no. to Europe. No, no, you're not going to get any argument from me on that. Yeah, the American government at, and the very governments at all levels are extraordinarily wasteful. 
and you, of course, can do a follow-up argument. You might say, if we are going to tax Americans to the tunes of however many billions and billions of dollars a year, uh, why aren't we getting more for it? And those who are advocates of education versus those who are advocates of more paved highways versus those who are advocates of larger national parks are going to have ongoing arguments about who should have a larger share of people's tax dollars. And that's fine if you want to play that game. So um, on the freedom issue, uh, it's not free. There are no free lunches, there are no free educations, right, and so forth. So what we have though is an issue, and this is where it's a moral issue. Do you think that individuals should be self-responsible and that if you want something in your life, it's up to you to find a way to go and get it? whether that thing be a job, whether it be a friend, whether it be uh, a great sex life, whether it be an education, whether it be anything, that you are a self-responsible individual and what you want is the freedom to go ahead and do so. Or do you want to have a, a political system in which you say, uh, we think there are certain things that everybody needs and we don't think that people can get those things by their own efforts. So we're going to mandate that other people be forced to provide those things for certain people. That's a moral political debate that we should be having a lot more. Um, on that point, I want to, your, well, on what you just finished on, um, you kind of divulged, you sort of entered into the, the sort of the, the argument for the libertarian there. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. In today's day and age where the threat of AI is is here. Automa jobs are being automated at a really rapid rate. The amount of jobs that are going to be available to to us in the next um, 10, 15 years is declining rapidly. We're currently going through a global pandemic, which has caused a lot of businesses to go out of business, has caused a lot of people to go out of work, and they've had to rely on social welfare or government handouts to keep themselves going. Yeah. Yeah. How do you um, justify the argument for being a libertarian in today's day and age with these factors that I've outlined? Right. Now, what I would say is uh, libertarianism becomes more important in the sense that if you are a young person, especially living in a world like a COVID virus world right, and AI, that uh, what you especially need is to take responsibility for your life and not expect that the powers that be are going to give you everything that you want. So you need to be more self-responsible, have uh, more uh, tools in your toolkit, more knowledge, more skills, so that in these uncertain times, you can adapt to uh, what's out there. At the same time, I would want to say, if you, want to have a meaningful life, what you want to do is recognize there are lots of smart, creative, innovative people out there and around the world, like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and so on. What you want is a society in which people like that, and there's a lot of them with a lot of potential, they are free to be creative and innovative to create the new ideas, the new technologies, and the new businesses that, even if you are not a genius yourself, you're going to benefit from all of that. If you go in the other direction and say, I'm just going to wait for someone to give everything to me that I need, 
I'm going to wait for the authorities to look after me, and I'm fine with them stifling the creative entrepreneurial geniuses, then you're just setting yourself up for an impoverished life. Now, to come back to, to the, the two particular points, uh, um, you mentioned the COVID virus and artificial intelligence and so on. I think the, the first point is that there, the uh, Joseph Schumpeter's phrase, he was an, an economist of the last century, of creative destruction is an important one. And I would urge uh, uh, your listeners, especially, to, to look up this phrase because there's an important point about the history of technology. Every generation for the last 500 years, as we started to have a more open, technologically and scientifically friendly society, has made the same argument. Here's a new technology that's coming along, and it is destroying jobs, and we're all going to be out of work and ignorant uh, and, and suffering in the next generation. And every generation, that turns out not to be true. The general point is that a new technology comes along and it does destroy old-fashioned ways of doing things. But at the same time, and this is what's not easily seen at the time of the new technology being introduced, is it is increasing the number of potential jobs that are out there. So for example, when Henry Ford and the others a century ago were starting to produce automobiles, yes. They did put a lot of veterinarians out of work because those veterinarians were looking after the horses that were um, uh, you know, pulling all of the carriages and, and so forth. And yes, it did put a lot of blacksmiths out of work. And yes, it did mean that farmers were going to grow a lot less hay to feed all of those horses and so forth. But 10 years after the introduction of the automobile, after that shaking out, there's uh, uh, an exponentially larger number of jobs in the transportation sector with the automobile having been created. All of those rubber tires and all of the metal parts and the machine makers and so forth and the painters and so forth than there were in the transportation sector earlier. The same thing has happened with uh, computers, uh, now a generation or so. Yes, it put a lot of typists out of work. And, and, and paper filer clerks out of work and so forth. But the number of jobs that have been created in the computer industry has largely outstripped that. So I would say the same thing for robotics and for artificial intelligence. It's going to put a lot of people who have certain kinds of traditional jobs out of work, but they are, as we speak, creating a lot more new kinds of jobs. And that's where I think the libertarianism becomes important because what we need, particularly among young people, is those who are willing to stand up and say, hmm, the world is open-ended. There's a lot of innovation. I don't know exactly what kind of job I'm going to have five years or 10 years from now, but by golly, I'm going to take responsibility and make myself into the kind of person who can handle whatever comes out in that sector. Okay, final question for you the 2020 presidential election coming up in November. Mm. Um, first thing I'm gonna ask you, out of every single candidate that ran, who would you have most liked to have seen, um, to, to have seen win it? And secondly, uh, who do you think will win between Trump and Biden? Right, well, let me confess ignorance because I almost totally ignored the Democratic presidential primaries. I know they ended up selecting Joe Biden. Mm. 
Um, and that's really about all I know. I know a little bit about Joe Biden from just picking up bits over the course of the year. My sense is that when the Democrats made their choice this year, they weren't right, particularly serious about the 2020 election. Joe Biden is just a, a kind of a goofy old guy and, and a non-entity who's just been around for a long time. He's totally a party machine. And I think most of the Democrat candidates uh, at that time were thinking it really is in the bag for Trump. So uh, we're gonna have, kind of have a practice run, but really we're looking ahead to, to 2024. Now, all of that was uh, several months ago. You know, uh, things have changed in the last couple of months. My sense is that Trump is more under attack. And so, uh, you know, by the time we get to November, a lot of Americans might be saying, well, Biden seems to be a non-entity. Trump seems to be pretty disgusting. Uh, pick your poison, lesser of two evils. So it's, it's again, and unpredictable. I think three months ago, or, or even two months ago, I would have said it's uh, pretty easy with respect uh, to predict that Trump would win. Uh, at this point, with uh, with the riots, with uh, the, the number of people who are still recovering from the, the the shutdowns imposed on them economically, with respect to the virus, and any number of things that can still happen over the course of the next four or five or six months, it's not predictable. Would you be fearful of another four years under a Trump presidency? Under a Trump uh, presidency. Well, yes, yeah. Just because I, I don't think he has a, any strategic sense. I think he's unpredictable uh, in terms of policies. There's any number of things I think he's been doing that are fine, but those are a minority, right? Number of things, and so when you're dealing with someone who's as unpredictable as he is and seems to be driven by whim rather than strategic principle. Uh, it's a danger to have that kind of person in the, in the top position in, uh, in government. So um, at the same time, you want to say, well, at least now we know what kind of guy Trump is, uh, and, and dealing with a known quantity is better than an unknown quantity. Uh, so maybe uh, you know, four more years of Trump would just be more business as usual. That's how. Uh, Stephen, I'm going to wrap it up there because you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. All right. Good Come questions, Finn. Thanks a lot. Thanks.